0: Today, uh, we continue in a series titled Ecclesiology, which, as we've been learning, is the study of the church. Uh, This term right here, Ecclesiology, it actually comes from two Greek words. Uh, The first half is Ecclesia, which literally translated means church or gathering or assembly. It's talking about the greater gathering of followers of Jesus throughout all the world, throughout all the ages. And then the second half, ology, which means the study of. So again, you put them together, you get the study of of the church. But what we have been specifically talking about in this series and what this term has more specifically come to describe is the study of doctrine pertaining to the Christian church. What we're spending, as we've talked about, the weeks leading up here all the way to Easter to discover and unpack the essentials of the Christian faith. We we find ourselves right now, that is all of us, in a post-Christian world where not only is Christianity not the predominant religion in our world, in our society, but as it relates to our first world American context, Christianity is actually often seen as the problem. Each of us are being far more influenced by progressive Christianity in the secular world than we are by the word of God and the historic Christian faith. So it is as important, and I would actually argue more important than ever before, that the follower of a Jesus understands what it is that we as Christians believe, and more importantly, why we believe it. And as we unpacked in part one in the introduction, if you don't learn about that stuff here, well, where else you get this information from? We as as Christians ought to be able to articulate our beliefs, and that probably sounds very very obvious. But as we talked about in part one in that introduction, it, it typically actually is the exception, not the rule. And, and if you're sitting here today and you're just kind of beginning to lean in, you're just kind of beginning to explore. You frankly owe it to yourself to understand what it is that you are potentially signing up for. So in part one in that introduction, I did my best to make the case for for why this content is really really important. And then last week we began to. To get into the meat of this series, and we spoke about God the Father. If you weren't here, by the way, for parts one or two, I would encourage you to go and get yourself caught up at Grumlaw.com slash messages. As I so often explain, uh, these messages are really like one longer message just broken down into different parts, and so if you miss a week, you're kind of going to be swimming in the dark for the subsequent weeks. So uh, you can also find those messages under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you grab your podcast. Now, it is impossible to talk about God the Father whom we spoke about last week, God the Son, whom we're going to be speaking about today, and God the Holy Spirit, that's coming next week, without first addressing the concept that is referred to as the Trinity. So we actually spent a little bit of time last week explaining this. Again, if you weren't here last week, go get yourself caught up. But just so you're not swimming in the dark, the the Trinity can be most succinctly described as as follows. Uh, Around here at at Grumlaw, we worship the one true God who has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's eternal, meaning he has always existed. He has always been. And that right there is really the central tenet of the triune God that you and I need to understand, where we as human beings draw most of our understanding about the Trinity from. God has made himself known. He has revealed himself to us by the Father sending the Son and sending the Holy Spirit to us, and all three are God. Three distinct persons, and that is an important distinction, manifested in three different ways. Now, now last week as we explored the, the, the Father, which not only is a name, which is not only a title, it also reveals who he is, we discovered that God the Father operates from a place of two primary functions or two primary roles. He, he is the creator and he is the redeemer. In fact, it is through his role as creator that his role as the redeemer is revealed. And it is impossible to talk about God the Father as our Redeemer without inevitably arriving at, without inevitably being led to explore God the the Son, which is where we're going to be picking up our teaching today. Now, before we explore this term Son, just as we explored the term Father last week, there's a really, really important detail regarding Scripture that, that is so often overlooked that we ought to point out right now. Jesus or God's son or the son of God is the one to whom all scripture leads that, that is that the purpose of scripture is to testify to the son in fact and even a lot of Christians don't seem to know this little detail the only reason the the Old Testament that that is that the first half of the Bible which by the way and this is just kind of bonus material uh, that first half of the Bible the Old Testament it is the Jewish Bible that that is if you were to literally get up right now go to a Judas Jewish synagogue and pick up the Jewish scriptures you would find verbatim the exact same thing that we have in our Old Testament the first half of our Christian Bibles but the only reason that Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures were combined with the New Testament the second half of the the Bible is because after Jesus died and then rose from the grave and later ascended into heaven to be reunited with his heavenly Father, but people started reading the Old Testament. They started reading the Jewish scriptures with all that had just transpired with Jesus fresh on their minds. And the same thing kept jumping to the forefront of their minds. How did did we miss this? This seems so painfully obvious now. Or more appropriately stated, how did we miss him? How did we miss Jesus? See, this whole Jewish text seems to be pointing to Jesus. And so eventually, well, they combined the Old Testament with the New Testament to form what we now refer to as simply the Bible, because, well, it was the church forefathers' opinion that the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, only provided further evidence that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. In fact, and by the way, I've used this illustration many, many times before. And so uh, if you're sick of hearing it, I apologize. But remember, there was a day when you too found this fascinating. That throughout the life of Jesus, he would end up fulfilling over 300 prophecies explicitly foretold in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. Let me kind of put into perspective how absurd that, that is. The odds of fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is one in 100 quintillions. I didn't make that number up, it's a real number, you can Google it, there, there's a lot of zeros there. Quintillion's like a really, really big number. But, but allow me to maybe give you a more visual illustration. The, the odds of fulfilling just eight of these prophecies It would be like filling the state of Texas knee deep in silver dollars. And then you pick up exactly one of those silver dollars, take a Sharpie, put an X on either side of it, throw it back into the pile, again, of knee deep silver dollars throughout the entire state of Texas, sift through it, sort through it. And then you set a blindfolded person loose and they reach down and on the very first try, they pick up that silver dollar with the X marked on it. Same odds, as eight prophecies being fulfilled by one man. And, and again, Jesus would fulfill conservatively over 300 of those prophecies outlined in the Jewish scriptures. So yeah, the, the, the church forefathers thought, let's, let's include that stuff. Let, let's include the Jewish scriptures. It seems to kind of only validate the work of, of Jesus. So with all of that as the backdrop, but we're going to spend some time this morning exploring the theology of Jesus's sonship. And we'll see how scripture speaks of Jesus as God's son in multiple ways. And hopefully as followers of Jesus, we will all walk out of this today understanding the importance of affirming and defending the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. Fair enough? Does that sound mildly interesting to some of you? All right, let's do this. Now, this title, Son of God, has long been a topic of debate amongst theologians and scholars because we see it used in a variety of ways throughout the scriptures. It's far from exclusive to Jesus. It's far from exclusive to God the Son. And so what I'm gonna attempt to do this morning is trace the topic of sonship across the Bible in order to reveal how it leads to Jesus. And most importantly, we'll see how Jesus's sonship is both related to his preeminent humanity and his eternal sonship. Still tracking with me? Now, the term son of God, uh, it's used 15 different times in scripture with seven of those applications taking a sharp focus on human application. That those seven instances are Adam, Israel, God's chosen people as talked about and spoken about within the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, David, King David, we're going to talk more about him this morning, God's covenant people, those adopted by God in Christ, that is you and I, uh, those who have put their faith in Jesus, imitators of God, and then lastly, the the seventh one, believers who will receive the, the kingdom of God. But but more specifically, as it relates to our conversation this morning, Christ himself received the title Son of God in, in four ways. He, he fulfills the, the following roles, and you'll see that there's some overlap here. Adam, Israel, David, and, and then lastly, the divine son. And we're going to cover this kind of meat here this morning. Now, we're going to start here with, with Adam. Adam. Uh, We're going to make lots of connections, by the way, back to those prophecies that I referenced just a moment ago and why I thought it was necessary to make that point beyond just pointing something out that is so statistically absurd. In in Luke chapter 3, Luke is one of those four gospel accounts, one of those four biological accounts of the life of Jesus, and the one that I find to be most compelling because the author Luke was a doctor. That is, Luke didn't just believe things for the sake of belief. He needed the proof, and he was hearing all these rumors about this guy who went by the name of Jesus and all these miraculous things that were happening that supposedly he was actually the son of God, and so he actually dedicated the latter part of his life to validating and seeing if Jesus was who he claimed to be, and then he records those findings for us in this document titled Luke. And at the end of Luke chapter three, Luke, again, the author lists, and if you've ever actually read this before, you've, you've likely wondered, you've likely thought, why does he list all of these names? It's so boring. It's kind of a trend all throughout his account. He gives us these painstaking details with people's names and whom they were related to. Why did you include this stuff, Luke? Well, right now I'm actually about to show you why. Luke at the end of chapter three, he lists the genealogy from Jesus and traces it all the way back to Adam, the very first man. Or as it appears in our Bibles, here's how he puts it. He says, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. That little detail right there even deserves a little bit of attention. Um, Jesus began his public ministry about 30 years old and it only lasted for about three years. Think about that little detail. Jesus's earthly ministry, building what we now refer to as Christianity only lasted three years, but yet here we are thousands of years later and we're still talking about Jesus. That's just just bonus material. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. And, And then a bunch of names that you've probably never heard of before. It says, Joseph was the son of this and this person was the son of this person. It goes on and on and on and on and again, and again, enter the thought, good grief, Luke, this is so boring. But remember, Luke was obsessed with the details. Because he wasn't about to buy into all of this Jesus hype without the proof. And so, hey, he says, here's here's the proof. And then he gets to the end of this genealogy and he wraps it up with this. Adam was the son of God. So again, begins with Jesus was, was the son of Joseph, a bunch of names, and he traces it all the way back to Adam was the son of God. Luke's entire point was to reveal Jesus as Adam's offspring by means of Abraham's family line. You remember talking about him from last week? Placed at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, this genealogy identifies Jesus as son of Adam and son of God and also helps to understand why the title son of God was even applied to Adam in the first place. Now, throughout the New Testament, the latter half of the Bible, that the theological significance of this connection between Jesus and Adam is only further developed. I'm gonna give us just one such example that we find in Paul's letter to the early Christian church in Rome. He says "There still everyone died from the time of Adam to to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. Now, an important distinction that that is made here by Paul and one that all of us should take note of as well is that Adam clearly fell short of his glory. Remember the whole disobeying, rebelling and and sinning against God thing? But, But he still retained his status as an image bearer. But the last Adam, that is Jesus, is the true son. He is the true image. He is the true glory of God. In this role, Jesus leads all of us to true glory that we cannot find apart from him. Or as as the writer of Hebrews puts it, another letter in the New Testament, it says, God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. As a son of God like Adam all that was true of the first man is true of Jesus only better because Jesus is without sin because Jesus is without blemish that's Adam let's move now to Israel God's chosen people now as discussed last week God the father began to reveal himself as our redeemer by redeeming a a, a remnant We, we remember this that that remnant was the Israelite nation God's chosen people As it's told in the book of Exodus, again, a book that we find in the Old Testament, this is what the Lord says. Israel, and notice the language here, is my firstborn son. God, as you might recall from the story from the book of Exodus, shortly thereafter, shortly after this is documented right here, he rescues the Israelites out from underneath the heavy hand of the Egyptians where they were serving as slaves showing the special place that the Israelites held in his heart. And in fact, later revelation identifies the exodus from Egypt as the place where God became the father of Israel. One such example we find in a book titled Hosea, again, from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. It says, when Israel was a child, and this is God speaking, I loved him. And I called my, again, notice the intentional language here. And I called my son out of Egypt, Furthermore, this corporate identification of God's son is like Adam. If you're not tracking with me, to break it down even further, what began with Adam is now carried on in Israel until it comes to Christ. We see this foreshadowing right here all throughout the New Testament. Most notably in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, And he recounts the events of Israel and the triumphant rescue uh, of Israel out from underneath the hand of the Egyptians, signifying the kind of son that Jesus is, a son like Israel. But, But spoiler alert, unlike Israel, unlike Adam, a people whom like us could not get out of their own way, could not stop sinning, could not stop rebelling, Jesus would not disobey his heavenly father. He would prove himself obedient to death in sort of a nerd out kind of little detail right here, would end up being the firstborn from the dead. Now, the, the most important son of God title that Jesus receives is, is related to, to King David, whom we're gonna explore right now. In, in Psalm chapter two, this is actually kind of a poem written to David from God. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, God speaking to David, I have become your father. This right here is God's testimony to his covenant to King David. Part of this covenant, as detailed actually in 2 Samuel chapter seven, if you wanna nerd out on this stuff even further, was a promise that a son would sit on an eternal throne from David's family line. Now, now if you think about that, that, that's kind of an outlandish promise. Unless you, which we all do, have the benefit of hindsight and and know what God was alluding to, which we're gonna explore right now. Now, now in the immediate history of Israel, Solomon, David's literal son, he, he fulfills this promise. He ruled with wisdom, with justice, bringing peace and blessing to the people by leading the nation from Zion. But, but if you continue to read that the obedience of David's sons, it was very short-lived. It, and it appeared that God had either broken this promise that, that his son would sit on an eternal throne or perhaps maybe God was doing that whole thing where he's speaking metaphorically and he didn't really mean what, what he was talking about. As it would turn out, neither was true. Here's what happens next. The the prophets within the Old Testament in faith began to speak of a son of David whose righteousness would restore the kingdom of Israel. And and they're reminded of this promise that that was promised to King David. And and specifically the language of of a suffering servant begins to arise. As we've covered many, many times around here, most notably in Isaiah chapter 53, Now, now right now, as I read this, and we're gonna read through Isaiah chapter 53. And again, if you're already bored to tears this morning, don't let this freak you out. It's a pretty quick chapter. But but as we read this, I want you to ask yourself the question, who does this sound like it's talking about? So right now we're we're gonna go through Isaiah 53 and I want you to really try to hone in, pay attention here and, and ask yourself that question. Who does this sound like it's talking about? Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees that all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels." I personally cannot begin to understand how you would not at least consider following Jesus after reading those words, after reading that prophecy, especially after you consider the fact that this was literally written hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth. It demands that that, that anyone take a closer look. And with these prophecies, with these prophecies pointing to the suffering servant, the hope of, of a new covenant emerged. It reminded them of the promise made to David. And in every instance that the hope was cast in terms of David's offspring. Now, I recognize that for us sitting here today in 21st century America, this might not feel like a very big deal. But to the ancient, largely Jewish world, this was life altering. That this had everyone's attention. That this is everything that they had been hoping for. All that scriptures had been pointing to. It's what they had dedicated their lives to being sure of knowing and sure of understanding. That they would have given multiple body limbs for what it is that we just take for granted. What we just now assume. The New Testament only further connects these dots for us. Often describing Jesus as the son of David whose righteousness under the law proves that he is God's true son, which brings all the promises of the new covenant to fruition. Paul, again, in his letter to the church in Rome, connects these dots for us. It says there, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the holy scriptures, like the one we just read. that The good news is about his, his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. He was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is, he wants to make sure there's no confusion, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. While Jesus is God the son throughout his entire human life, his resurrection assigns him the title son of God. This title tags back to the promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Only now it is applied to Jesus who has proven to be God's true son and worthy of an eternal throne. In other words, when when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the father's right hand, by the way, fulfilling Psalm 110 verse one, all creation was put under his feet. In his exaltation, Jesus received the right to rule over heaven and earth as the son of David, who is the son of God. So so to summarize, and if you've been kind of spacing out here, bring it back in. What Adam, Israel, and David failed to do, to, to prove their sonship, Jesus has done. Church, this is the core of the gospel message, this is the way that God in Christ unites all things in heaven and earth as the eternal son of God is recognized as the son of God to whom redemptive history has been pointing. Now, now if this little walk through Sonship 101 has been of little interest to you, one, I, I get that. There was a time in my life where I would have cared less about details like this. But let me explain to you as I tie a bow on this thing, why, why this ought to matter to all of us, why it ought to matter to, to you. I think we've saved the best for last. We move on to to the divine son. In Galatians chapter four, which is a letter again that Paul wrote to the early Christian church uh, in Galatia, it says there, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. When God the son took on humanity, he he came to fulfill the role marked out for him by Adam, Israel, and David. But but all the others, they were mere shadows of the true son who who actually came before them since Jesus is eternal. He's the son of God like Adam, like Israel, like David, but he's also God the son, the, the second person of the Trinity. As John so plainly puts it in his gospel account, he says, the word, that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This right here is an establishment of Jesus's place as equal with the father, a claim that, that would eventually get Jesus killed. And that right there, that, that's where I wanna land the plane this morning. All the evidence was staring at those Jewish leaders thousands of years ago. It, it was looking at them right in the face, the miracles, the, the, the prophecies, the, the scriptures. I mean, they knew those scriptures better than anyone. I mean, Jesus himself in the flesh. And, and rather than bowing before God, the son in worship and adoration, they, they, they instead nailed him to a cross. They turned away, they rejected him, they ignored him. Now, now to be fair, you should only worship Jesus, give your life to him if he is God. But but like those same people who, who encountered Jesus in the flesh, you too, you watching here today, you have a decision to make, reject or believe that those early Christian church fathers, that they tried to make this part of this really easy on us, on, on all of the witnesses that would follow. John puts it this way, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name, by the power of the son's name. That is that they recorded all of this, everything that we've covered this morning. You you could even call it evidence that they they did that for for you, for, for me. In fact, they thought it was compelling enough that most of them would end up giving their lives for what they believed. That they would willingly offer their lives because they were so sure of Jesus. They were so sure of God the son because they knew. That only those who know the Son will experience true life, eternal life, the life that God offers to each of us through his Son. That This is what the New Testament clearly teaches. It's what the Orthodox Church has always recognized and defended, and it is what true followers of Jesus continue to confess and believe. Jesus is God's Son, the one to whom all Scripture leads and points to, the one who is God and, and man that the one who who would give his life so that you might have life. Or again, as, as Paul puts it, so that you could be adopted as his own children, sons and daughters of the most high God.